0: insurance costs, and more. On the regulatory front, things are in a state of flux, as the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration is in the midst of a review of its Compliance Safety Accountability Program, which applies scores to motor carriers' and drivers' safety records. The scoring system that underpins the entire program is at the center of this review, and the outcome could affect how risk is managed in trucking for years to come. From both the compliance and business sides of the equation. We've got a panel of experts for today's show who can provide a boots-on-the-ground perspective on both sides of that equation. That starts with Joe DiLorenzo, Director of of the Office of Enforcement and Compliance at FMCSA, someone with a front row seat to the ongoing CSA review and all that has brought us to this point. For the fleet perspective, we welcome Lisa Gonerman, Vice President of Safety and Security for Transport America, someone living day-to-day with how CSA scores affect a carrier. Keeping TT readers informed on all of this is Eric Miller, our senior regulatory reporter and someone who we rely on here in the office for expertise on these issues. Later on, we'll hear from another TT staffer, Features Editor Fran Matso-Lisak. She spoke via Skype with Bert Mayo, Director of Transportation Risk Solutions with True North Companies, about how CSA is affecting the insurance marketplace and what fleets can do to help themselves find the right coverage. Our program today is brought to you by Protective Insurance and we thank them. You can participate in this discussion by emailing us at share at ttnews.com. We will do our very best to include your questions and your comments. Thank you all for being here today. Joe, we're going to start with you since it's your agency that is giving us our news hook for this show. For viewers who may not know, could you just give us a brief history lesson on CSA and bring us up to date on why the system is under review and how we got to where we are
1: today. Sure, Joe, and thanks for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to come and uh, see you and and talk to your audience. Not going back too far, but if we go back to 2010 and look at where we were, prior to 2010, we did have a system where the agency used the data that was available to identify which carriers to to go and spend our investigative resources to try and improve safety. I mention that simply because... That's really what this is all about. I think everybody probably understands the scope of the industry. There's over 500,000 motor carriers out there. We're lucky if we can get to about 2% of those motor carriers every year. So we're looking to try and get at, I say, the worst 2% of those Mm -hmm. carriers. So back in 2010, we decided we needed to relook at uh, how we prioritize motor carriers and how we went after that improvement in safety. So leading up to there we did a lot of testing, we did some public listening sessions, and in 2010 we went and we launched the CSA program and specifically the safety measurement system which is the data and the system that we're really talking about here. Since 2010, um, we've tried to be as responsive as we could. Um, the data was available publicly in a different way, although it was available also before. And we did make some changes in response to some industry concerns and and work through some of the issues and concerns that folks had, which led us up to maybe the more current history, um, which is uh, recently as part of our transportation reauthorization, we got some direction from Congress about how to move forward with uh, CSA and with SMS in particular. Mm. What that legislation said was that certain elements of the CSA program that were publicly displayed earlier, Uh, namely the percentiles, which I know you and all of your uh, viewers are very familiar with, as well as my panelists here, um, were not to be displayed for the property carriers subsequent to the review that you mentioned in your opening remarks. So since then, what's happened is, uh, based on the legislation, the agency had contracted with the National Academies of Sciences to look at the system and provide us with recommendations. So they did that. The report is publicly available. And what we're doing with it right now is we're taking those recommendations and we're working through the process of figuring out how we can implement them to help improve the system.
0: Okay, and so that's that's been going on for how long now, the review?
1: So, the review start I mean, the whole process started back in late 2015 and early 2016. Okay. The process of the National Academie's doing the review. They provided us their report. So basically since earlier this year in 2018, we've been working on the implementation process okay. of uh, those recommendations that they provided for us.
2: Okay it, uh, Joe, I know you've had a public session in August and you've been hearing comments from the industry. What are some of the concerns and fears you're hearing from the industry? And how are you responding to kind of calm the anxiety?
1: Sure, it's a good question. And we actually, we had two public meetings. We had one back last year as we were developing what we would actually do in response to the recommendations. And this most recent meeting was about kind of some of the specifics of that. And I think the concern that I hear the most is, uh, and I think this is all of our tendency, it's kind of like how is my issue going to be dealt with? Mm -hmm. So we all know some of the concerns that folks have raised. And um, a lot of what we're hearing is, okay, so that's great. You talked to us about this IRT model, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit. So what does that mean for me? So I think really it's just that level of uncertainty. And my response to that generally is, Yes, I understand that, but what I'm really asking for is some patience, right? And I ask for two things, because it is a process. The National Academies asked us to look at this in a very different way than we've done before. So I think we all need to be a little bit patient with us. They specifically gave us a couple years because they knew it was going to be complicated. But the other, the, it's almost uh, not what I say to help, you know, ease those fears, but it's kind of my ask of everybody is, you know, put away your preconceived notions. Right, And what, what the National Academy said to us was, you're doing a pretty good job, but what you need is a good kind of statistical basis for what you're doing. And part of that means all of us, myself included, has to put away a little bit of our expert judgment about what decisions we make about SMS and about other things, and at least start by letting the data drive the process. So. Um, and I guess the last piece of it is I always like to remind people that we said this very early on in um, the process, which is we are going to continue this conversation as we go forward. So we're going to have more opportunities once we really have some changes to make and some questions to ask to get the industry's input and others in order to really understand you know, what the best decisions to make
2: are. Mm-hmm. Are you far enough along yet on the research and testing to get a feel for if this is going to be a big improvement to CSA?
1: So I don't know if I can go quite that far but what I can't you know where we are right now is really trying to understand the new process that the National Academies um, has outlined for us and we're working with them on the implementation part of that and I think what we really are starting to understand now is that yeah there are some basic things that we need to do I think that while it's important for calculations and math and modeling to make things simple, that simplicity also is important for everybody to be able to understand you know, what we're doing. So I think at the very least, we can, you know, we're at the point now where we can say, all right, we're starting to understand this model. We think we know what it's going to tell us. And, and I think the other message you know, for you and for the viewers is that um, the tool is not an answer. You know, when we implement, uh, or if we implement however we end up going forward with SMS, what IRT will do at the very least is it provides us with information based on data to make decisions. Mm-hmm. That's why I say this conversation's still gonna be an ongoing conversation because the data's gonna tell us a bunch of things and we're gonna have to go back and look at the, those data points and say, okay, now how does that, what does that mean for us in SMS, what does that mean for us in, for prioritizing carriers and what does it mean for us in terms of how we make the data available public?
2: I had a discussion with uh, Steve Bryan of uh, Vigilo about the new IRT model and he's a big supporter. He says it's gonna be reflective more of a safety culture that a carrier has and um, he's been already modeling the program with with some assumptions uh, and is a big supporter. He says it's gonna increase the number of carriers that get on the radar. Uh, it's going to be more transparent. Um, so just wanted to add that comment that he's he's a big supporter of it.
1: Sure, and I, I think to your point, one thing that that will be very helpful is I think that one of the good outcomes of this is something that we've all struggled with in terms of where do you draw the line? Mm-hmm. And we've always had to make a line, whether it's a line for a percentile, or whether it's a line for how many inspections that we use. And one of the things that IRT allows us to do that we're starting to see is, it may make those, those lines not as important because we'll be able to understand the confidence that we have in the data. Mm-hmm. So how do you compare two carriers with four bad inspections, one who had four or five versus one who had four or 20? which is something that we're really not great at doing in the current mm-hmm. system and confidence in that will be a really important piece for us in terms of how to go forward in our mission to, to prioritize these carriers.
0: Mm-hmm. So Lisa, I'd like to hear your perspective on this. Not only, I'd like to hear what you think of, you know, what, what you know so far of the IRT model, but I'd like to maybe, maybe hear your perspective, kind of take the same tack that, that Joe took, sort of a history lesson of what you've experienced with CSA thus far and how you see what what changes you might like to see and how you think and hope that the system might improve with the the changes that we're anticipating.
3: Uh, Sure. Um, When CSA first came out, it was a learning curve for everyone to understand the program. And honestly, I think CSA has done some really good things to the industry. Um, It has really brought safety to the forefront, which is a very good thing. And I think that needs to continue and that's the piece that I like about it the most. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of uses right now of the program. And you know even today with those public scores being uh, are taken away from the public, it's still being used every day. You know, we get customers uh, from bids that we have to provide that information for. So I think some of the concerns with the program that we have in the industry is we want it to be fair, we want it to be consistent and really truly reflect um, the safety of our programs and our company. And uh, there's a few disparities in there that we do have some concerns with. You know, there are different geographic regions. You could have a fleet that works in a very rural area, hardly ever sees a scale or an inspector, and they have very few inspections. You can have another fleet that's in a very metropolitan urban area and uh, along the interstate, a lot of inspections. Is that really uh, one fleet better than the other because of that? So i think that's one thing you also have some uh, geographic uh, differences from state by state as far as the enforcement efforts so we all use i think texas sorry to pick on texas Um, but they have a higher number of vehicle maintenance so if you have a lot of trucks in that area your vehicle maintenance is probably going to be higher Uh Um, they just uh, tend to see more there Um, another piece is the crash and the preventability and again, you know, I have concerns with our motoring public out there today that is much more aggressive and distracted, and um, it's not always the truck driver's fault. Uh-huh. But we take a lot of those accidents um, on our profiles, even when you know we may know that it's not our fault. Uh-huh. So, and that gets used against us. So, I think what we're looking for is just a really uh, a fair system that will. Evaluate um, our safety and our culture. Um, the IRT model sounds very promising. I'm very happy to hear uh, of Steve's, uh, Brian's uh, feedback, and uh, it gives me a lot of hope that there is a model out there. You know, it, this is a model that hasn't been used in transportation before. Um, it's been used very, you know, quite a bit in the healthcare industry and for standardized testing. So I'm hopeful that this will give us kind of that ground base to reformulate the program and have it a, a, a fair, effective program for the industry, because it is used in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. even today. And some of it, I would say, may not always reflect really the true safety culture of that carrier today. Mm-hmm. So that's my concern. That's
2: a good answer. Uh, yeah, Joe, I wonder if you are far enough along that you could provide any ex- maybe an example or two of how violation uh, weights might change. I recall at a recent conference you were talking about the speeding uh, violations, and you came up with a few surprises on that when you ran a test of it.
1: Sure, that that actually probably is the best example, and this is where the whole put your preconceived notions away is important because uh, we in the in the model, the current SMS, when we look at the different speeding violations, there's three different speeding violations, 6 to 10, 11, 14, 15, and, up. and as experts we say speeding is bad and the faster you go the worse it is. So we have them ordered that way in terms of how the violations are weighted. Um, when when the National Academies, they ran a little bit of a, a just a small test on some of the data um, in this process and when they did it and they looked at kind of how those violations uh, relate to crashes, the order actually almost reversed so you know six to ten actually showed stronger relationship to crashes and so people like us we all sit around so we like why you know why is this and one of the thing the IRT has another name in, in the kind of the academic world it's called latent trait theory and what that means is that the IRT model is seeing some things in that data that we as experts can't really see Maybe it's the fact, and this is just kind of our like brainstorming, like maybe it's the fact that uh, six to tens happen more often in urban areas because you know anybody that lives around here knows it's pretty hard on most days to get above 10 miles an hour over the speed limit on the Washington Beltway. But you're maybe going six or seven or eight over in really bad traffic conditions. So it's seeing some of the other elements that maybe we as experts can't see when we're just looking at a speeding violation and its relationship to crashes. So that was one that even, you know, I've been doing this a long time and a bunch of us sat around and said, hey, this doesn't seem like, this doesn't seem right. Why is this? And trusting the data and looking at it and understanding that IRT is able to see some pieces of, the, of what's going on behind the scenes maybe that we can't see just through our own judgment.
2: Yeah, I know you're, you're uh possibly going to conduct a test uh, early next year. I wonder what's the next step in this process and when do you have a target date for implementation?
1: Sure. Were well, you going to add something to that first. I was That's just going to ask another question, <laughs> <That's fine>. actually. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll, I will Sorry. not answer your question, but before we moved on.
3: So, Joe, one of the challenges I think the industry has, too, is, you know, there's a lot of trucking companies out there, a lot of various sizes, and a lot of very small trucking companies. I think 90% of the trucking companies are, are less than uh, six trucks, mm-hmm. and about 70% of those don't have a CSA score. Is there a means that more carriers would be involved in the CSA and have a
1: score of some sorts I do think that's a possibility one of the, as I mentioned earlier I think this is where confidence in the data comes in because right now we have these data sufficiency thresholds that mm-hmm. you know either three or five that if you don't have that many bad inspections you're just not on the radar right. and I think that if we're able to, you know, kind of mature the model to the point where we're getting confidence in the data for the smaller carriers. I think that will help because that will help us to see kind of, to your example, we talk about this all the time, you know, my example of four bad inspections, we just looked at a carrier like this, you know, four really bad inspections. It's not five, but should we, the question then is, should we be waiting for five, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what you know we as you know in our prioritization struggle with, so I do feel like we will get to the point where we'll be able to maybe understand a better piece of the industry. the other thing that we look at though is that I mean what we are getting of the carriers with the percentiles, most of the crash experience is with those carriers, mainly because of exposure, but also you know to the main point of why we do this is to not get to the issue of crash experience, so get to some of those folks before they Got do. So.
3: And another piece I think that we see is, um, you know, there's a lot of crashes out there. So the data piece, so you have your inspection piece and then you have the other side is the data coming from the carriers. Can you talk about any of the changes that you're looking at for that to get more of the crashes, more of the miles and from all the carriers? Because I think the IRT model has a lot of potential but I think we all know the data coming in has to be accurate as well to make that
1: model work the best. This will teach me to let you ask questions. <laughs> 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 the whole thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, oh, I no. should know. I should know better. It makes the show better, Joe. <laughs> it's okay. Well, that's why I'm here, right? So. Um, you know the the data quality when when uh, the National Academies gave the recommendations, they really put them in two categories. One is the data and the data quality, and the other one is uh, you know this whole IRT modeling mm-hmm. thing. So to your point about the data, that is definitely a challenge that we're working on in kind of parallel to this work we're doing in IRT. We are somewhat limited and always will be in the data that we have and the quality of that data. It is self-reported data. If we and, and you mentioned miles, so I'll use that as the example because that also came up in the National Academies report. You know, baseline, denominator, mileage data is difficult. We have a self-reported requirement that, you know, should get updated every two years. Um, one of the things we're doing in that area is we are looking at other sources of data to see if it could help us either validate those miles or otherwise. So things like IRP, and IFTA data to see if there are other data sources out there. We're always going to be limited at what we can collect as the government and the ability to do that. Um, uh, The carriers that are active, like, like you all, I know you're in there all the time updating your power unit data and Uh your mileage data. And that's great, but not necessarily everyone is doing that. So we are looking at some other ways where we can, um, you know, maybe get some checks against, that mileage data we have some you know built into the system but it's really hard to tell from our perspective so maybe some of these other sources of data that are out there will help us to kind of validate um, those numbers and maybe make some improvements on that end
3: okay thank you we're looking forward to that
1: sure
2: yeah and i wondered your next move you're you're gonna do a testing earlier i guess next sure
1: we've actually done some some small scale kind of exploratory testing already again to kind of see how it works with the data one of the things we're finding is it is complicated and it could take a really long time to run so we've done some tests with uh, you know a randomly selected group of ten thousand carriers to look at the violations and kind of see how that all worked out so we're going to continue working through that process something else that has to happen is the item in item response theory uh we need to consider what that means and towards your question about how do we improve uh, mileage data, items in, in the way we're looking at it right now are violations, and there's 899 violations that we use in SMS, and that is a massive number of violations. And so part of what we're going to do before we go too much further with kind of the exploratory testing and the small-scale models is how do we reduce that number of items? We, some of you probably remember, we used to use just out of service violations in our prioritization, and then we went to all violations. And maybe the right answer is somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. And so we're working on some violation cleanup and maybe consolidation of that, which will also help with the simplicity and understandability factor. And we're gonna have some continuing technical discussions with the National Academies so that we can get to a point where we can run something and run a model hopefully early in the year next year that will be helpful to talk about right now it's a lot of kind of numbers and analysis but we really want to get something together so that we can get the industry together and say okay here's kind of where we are we need to check in how do you feel about this are there other things we should be considering and and the like so those are really the next steps
2: and you have a implementation date in mind or
1: well uh, you know the national academies gave us until you know, gave us the two years, which we would be towards the end of the year next year. Um, a lot just depends on, on what the results are. Again, you know, I'm like a, I'm a good, you know, government employee. I've got deadlines. I've got things I want to do. And we've, We're trying to kind of put those aside a little bit and say, hey, let's see what the data says. Let's see what the conversation with the industry is. And um, there's going to be decisions to make. I think I mentioned a little bit earlier that, um, IRT is not an answer. It's it's uh, going to provide us some data to make some decisions. So, if we can make decisions that will help in terms of the tar- the uh, SMS goal of targeting carriers as well as you know addressing industry concerns, I think that's what we're working towards. So,
2: is it possible that this whole new concept gets dumped in the end?
1: anything is possible so you know what the national Academy said. i don't think it's likely okay I hope that's not the thing everybody gets mad at me for saying okay but uh you know the national academy specifically said in the recommendation they said if it performs better then move forward with implementation so okay. I don't want to you know a lot of different things can happen between now and then and I think the most important thing is that we're having this conversation and as we go forward we continue to have that conversation as we make those decisions about you know going forward I keep saying that the, the very worst possible thing that could come out of this is We've learned a lot about the data and what the data means, and that in itself, I think, will influence some of the decisions that we make going forward. That's
3: great. Well, I know from an industry perspective, we do appreciate the partnership and the feedback that you're requesting um, and uh, working together to improve the program, and and we've seen different uh, pieces of that throughout the program, so this is kind of that next step, and we're we're hopeful from uh, what you've said and what uh, Steve said about uh, where it's going, so. Um, we're looking forward to the next step.
0: Great. As a reminder, you're watching Live on Web's Managing Risk and Trucking. As we continue, we invite you to participate in the show. You can email questions or comments to share at ttnews.com, and we'll do our best to address them during the show. So it's not just Lisa who can pick on Joe, you can too. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, I, you know, a, a big part of this in managing risk is, you know, the drivers, the driver part of yeah. this, because they're the ones who are out there, they're the ones who are affecting these scores as, as much as anybody, but as much as other drivers on the road, as you mentioned. Right. So there's, there's a lot cooked into getting the right people you know, in those trucks. Can you talk about what your screening process has been like you know, in, in a CSA world? What are you looking for when new candidates come in the door and you know, maybe a training regimen and coaching as they go along?
3: Uh, We're looking at all the data that we can to look at that background of a driver. And it's a tough market right now, Um, but it doesn't mean you you can't take your eye off of the data and what kind of driver you're pulling into your company. So we're looking at their violation history, their accident history, uh, the criminals, the full application, the background, who have they worked for, what's their history there. We're looking at all those different pieces of it, as well as the drug and alcohol. We go an extra step with the hair testing, those types of things to make sure that we still have a safe driver out there. And it is tough. Um, I know we've talked about the shortage for a long time, but I think it's here and we're in the middle of it and I don't see a whole lot of relief coming anytime soon. So that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. So um, I know as a company, we're, we're looking at standards as far as what do you do. But we also have to remember that, and the bottom line comes, we have to hire that driver that is still going to be safe out there. And honestly, we're putting more time into training and the focus on training when we're getting drivers in the door as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you go into details about the training regimen? I mean, is there a certain we
3: Yeah, we're, we're looking at that background when we bring somebody on. If there's a history maybe that they don't have uh, a vehicle inspection, for example, they have some violations there. You know, we'll try to look at where they came from, what's the history, and provide some targeted training up front, Mm -hmm. along with a full orientation. So our orientation program, we're really not looking to um, cut it down, we're looking to try to, how do you get your point across and and make it more effective overall. Mm -hmm. So that orientation is very important, along with the continued training as the drivers are over the road. Um, You know, we have simulators, so we're using simulators to try to increase those skills because there are some, I think it's harder to get a, an experienced driver these days too, so it's less experienced and not everybody has uh, a whole history. So how do you provide that? We also have trainers uh, that the drivers go out with and there's a whole a lot of documentation and skills testing that they have to pass before they're approved to go on to, to the solo world um, by themselves. So. A lot of different things. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, um, a lot of paperwork and documentation to make sure that you have all that in place and uh, continued training. I, at this point, you can't train enough right now, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And you got to make an effective training. You can't just you know, put a driver in front of a DVD and expect them to mm-hmm. get everything out of it. So how do you get them engaged in the training, I think, is a key piece and make them feel like they own it. and you know, how does it affect them and their families? That's the important piece.
0: And in terms of incentivizing drivers, you know for for good performance, you know, I mean, I guess there's 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 coaching if there's a problem, but then also rewarding good behavior as well.
3: That's correct. So um, we can't always beat them up. We have to incentivize them and, and and make sure that we're putting some things out there that incent them to do the right thing. So, There's uh, different bonus programs, safety bonuses, um, little things like hats and and, uh, uh, fun little letters or or something that goes out to the family go a long way. That recognition from their leader, from the safety leader, the president of the company, anything like that goes a long way. It doesn't have to always um, spend a lot of money to get that, but it's important that you do have those positive programs in place for your drivers.
2: Mm Yeah, I'm I'm hearing from some of the fleets, Lisa, that they're having to take on more risk with their hiring of drivers as a result of the shortage. I'm wondering if that's a potential problem in the industry or a challenge?
3: Yeah, I think it is a challenge, and I think it is something that the industry is facing because the amount of drivers out there that are well-skilled and um, have that wonderful history that we'd love to have every driver to have mm-hmm. from a performance standpoint, they're fewer and further between, which makes it harder. And so, yeah, there are some tough decisions that companies do have to make as far as where are they willing to take some risk and what can they do to alleviate that, maybe once they get that person in the door through, for example, the training piece that I mentioned or um, a training program with going out with a trainer, something like that. So there are decisions that have to be made, but in the long run, you know, we're responsible because they're out there with the inspectors and uh, they're driving our, our scores and what we do, which impacts the risk, which impacts what our customers, brokers, uh, everybody looks at. So it's some tough decisions. Mm-hmm.
0: So I know one of the things that you guys use in particular is video monitoring as another way to manage that risk and manage you know the things that can happen on the road that can affect your safety scores and your bottom line. Certainly. And I mean, a lot more than just, you know, just, it's this, this life and death sometimes. So talk about how you know that, that video data informs and can protect the drivers.
3: It really can. Um, we, we do have a fleet that is fully uh, with video uh, uh, technology. And I don't know if I'd have a fleet without one anymore today. Yeah. Um, and I know more and more fleets are going to that. And it can be very beneficial. And uh, even with our motoring public like that we talked about out there, more aggressive, more distracted, Um, It always goes to, you know, that driver makes the phone call into risk. they report their accident, and, you know, we have that tendency to think right away of what did the driver do, but it's not always the case, and the video can prove it. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in the last eight weeks, we've had several exoneration videos that really have shown our driver did everything they could, and we were still hit by the number two vehicle. And Mm -hmm. with that video, we have that proof. And if we didn't have that video, the amount of reserves that we would have put on those claims would have been substantially more than we did because we have the video that can help protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it does make a good, big difference. We can coach a lot of different things with the video, whether it's internal or external. You can get a lot of benefit out of it uh, coaching behaviors. And we all have behaviors. And once we get the videos, we can monitor those behaviors. We can coach Mm -hmm. it. And it's very beneficial for the driver to see that video. Um, you can explain it to them, but once they see kind of that game film of what actually happens, it's hard to argue. Mm-hmm. And it's that reality of what they're doing that helps them adjust their behavior. So as you then see changes in that behavior, that's where it's important to have your positive enforcement mm-hmm. programs in place too.
0: That, that's a great point So I was going to ask you, what, what kind of reaction the drivers have? Are they resistant to the video? Are they receptive, I guess? on the situation
3: you know I, I think it depends on the driver too yeah. but uh, we actually have um, requests from drivers uh, some of our our fleet that maybe uh, one isn't working that they want to go get their own because they feel they want that protection and they need that mm-hmm. protection so I've had that in, in several different companies where we found out you know we didn't have it and the driver got their own so yeah. uh, I think uh, there is more adaption to it more willingness to um, have the video, and they understand how it can actually help them, too. And one of the things we try to do is take those exoneration videos and show them to our fleets, too, a- and also use it in some training that we put together so they can see how we use the video to help them be better and more successful at our company. Mm-hmm. And we do have an a incentive program put together to rewar- reward that uh, behavior as it changes to make mm-hmm. it better as well.
0: Joe, how does how does that how does that affect your relationship with fleets? I mean, a lot of fleets now have they have this hard evidence that they're bringing to the table when it comes to the, some of the violations.
1: Sure, I mean, from our perspective, I mean, obviously we were talking a little bit about this earlier, but there's been obviously this huge growth in in the use of video, and it is helpful when we have discussions about crashes with carriers over preventability or not that the video can really take the place of almost everything else in order to kind of help and so we have seen it in our uh, albeit limited crash review program um, where carriers are submitting crashes for preventability that uh, when they they submit video uh, it it makes the decisions really easy because as as you said you know it's all kind of right there in front of you it is uh, and it makes it I, i think we've even seen in that program just what you're describing a comfort level where there's kind of a resistance to it um to fleets finding that there's all sorts of uses for it you know probably one of the least of which is you know how they uh deal with us on their on their crash history
3: yeah it's uh that's one of the first things we asked for when an accident's called in was our video you know Mm -hmm. because we know exactly where we're at then and what really happened Uh, not saying that we don't always get the truth, but you do get different perspectives and and how things could be reported, so we know, know exactly what's going on it's It's very beneficial
1: yeah. Yeah. If video is without bias right went through a traumatic experience, no matter what happened right. that that always can be confusing and right. you know even to the point where sometimes I think drivers are uh, you know and some of the things that we see are, are kind of more concerned about what they did. Right. And the video actually clearly shows you know cuz yeah. they're so so self-conscious and so conscientious about what they're doing. Exactly. You might get a little bit of a different version of the story. You may. and
0: plus, <laughs> and, and you are you're relying on something that can be reviewed over and over and over again versus relying on a memory that's going to fade over time that you know you you the drivers are looking to get away from the, from the problem. So if, the, if 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 the video captures the problem when the driver was necessarily looking away from, say, a car coming over, trying to get away, that's, that's where you want to have something that is unbiased and...
3: Mm-hmm. It is, and things happen very fast. You know, you yeah. think about going down the interstate at 62, 65 miles an hour, and, and somebody comes into the side of your truck, it happens very quickly, and mm-hmm. you know? So, to have that video is, really explains
0: the story a lot. Mm-hmm. As a reminder, one more time, you're watching Live One Web's look at managing risk in trucking. As we continue on, we invite you to participate. You can shoot us an email at share at ttnews.com, and we'll do our best to get your comments in during this program. Uh, I did want to turn to equipment, not video equipment, but actually, you know, the onboard safety equipment, where there's, there's so much on a truck now to mitigate risk, to help to help, to help the driver avoid it in the first place. So talk about, talk, can you talk about, you know, some of the collision avoidance technologies that, you know, that your fleet uses and mm-hmm. that, you, that you have found beneficial, and Joe, I want to hear your perspective on that as well.
3: Um, you know, at Transport America, we really do uh, equip our trucks with really the, uh, the most technology. Um, there's no substitute for a skilled, qualified, safe driver, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the technology can assist them. Like we talked about, things happen so fast. Um, and so the collision avoidance systems um, have, all of our trucks have uh, that unit. It's very beneficial, highly encourage fleets to take a look at that because it is a very good thing, lane departure, roll stability. Uh, we have some side detection monitoring uh, coming on some of the trucks where uh, on the side, so lane changes can always be a challenge and to make sure that there's even more uh, awareness from that standpoint. So all of those different pieces, um, you know, you always do an ROI when you put the new technology on the truck. and we've seen a very quick turnaround in the collision uh, mitigation systems Mm -hmm. that it can really help. And those rear end accidents in particular um, is a big, big difference. Rear end is typically a DOT accident Mm -hmm. where there's an injury, there's a a toe, could be pretty serious depending on the rate of speed. And those are cut in half, almost eliminated uh, with those systems that are working in Mm -hmm. the manner. So uh, I think the systems have done a really good job to really enhance uh, the product out there. So there's some really good products that do a great job to assist that driver to be safe and keep the motoring public safe.
0: What does FMCSA found about all this,
1: Joe? Well, your- I, I mean, I think the points made here were very good. I, I think we can offer maybe just a couple of, a little bit of context on that. From a technology standpoint, we're obviously supportive of, but not prescriptive, you know, about the technologies. Carers need to identify the technologies that mm-hmm. work best for them. Um, what we see that we like to remind as we look, you know, remind folks of as we look across carriers is technology is not actually a solution. It's part of a solution mm-hmm. and it has to be part of your overall safety management program if you decide that what's important to your fleet because you're having tire issues is that you're going to use a tire pressure monitoring system that's excellent however, that requires a system of review mm-hmm. of the alerts that you're yes, getting that's a great point. and yes. you know what actions will be taken in response to those and I think sometimes um, we're all quick to in in trucking as well as in the rest of our lives to find a technology that will help us you know accomplish some task and and so we just like to make sure that folks are kind of you know using it as part of their system even things like you know adaptive cruise or the collision warning systems you know um as a carrier uh it's great because it may have prevented that action but you're getting all of this data and how are you using it to inform not just that yeah. driver but the rest of your sometimes it's i've seen some fleets who have gotten some great data by looking at locations mm-hmm. and we're getting all kinds of alerts in this particular stretch of road so hey you know driver eric remember when you get there keep your speeds down those kinds of things so exactly. we're just looking for it in terms of you know, managing it as part of your overall system and all your overall safety management controls mm-hmm. that you're putting in place. Yeah,
3: That's a great point because yeah. you have the data, it's the behavior. How do you mm-hmm. change the behavior um, is really what those systems can do for you that you have to use.
0: Now, Lisa, I also wanted to ask, do, 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 do insurers offer any kind of incentives for having the various equipment on the trucks?
3: I have heard that some of the insurance carriers uh, do, some don't,
0: mm-hmm. but it's
3: definitely one of the things that they're asking about. Um, as far as what technology is on the fleets and um, what's your percentage of being equipped with all the different technologies because I think the underwriters are very very interested in the technology as an assistance Mm -hmm. to be uh, safe and I think it also goes to the safety culture of a company of you know it's not cheap some of those systems it's an investment that you have to make but obviously safety is worth it so Mm -hmm. how much uh, how serious is that company from a safety investment standpoint in their culture But, yes, it's definitely a question that is uh, important to them.
0: And uh, speaking of insurance, I did want to get to, at this point, our interview with uh, Burt Mayo from True North Companies. Our own Features Editor, Fran Matzo-Lizak, spoke to Burt about the insurance marketplace and uh, the treacherous waters sometimes that fleets must navigate when they're trying to find the best coverage. So we'll turn to that, uh, the first of two parts uh, right here, right now. So thank you for watching, and check
4: it out. How do insurance companies currently use CSA scores to evaluate a motor carrier's risk?
5: Well, most insurance companies take the CSA basic scores and use them as a uh, initial indicator of that risk uh, to determine, you know, the value they're going to place on the insurance program. Uh, it, it was a few as of eighteen months ago, uh, insurance companies would look at motor carriers with two or three. El- basics and alerts, and as long as the loss experience was good, and they had good controls in place, we could place that in, that risk, you know, with one of the primary markets. Today, motor carriers with three alerts and, you know, average loss experience, are going to have a very difficult time finding insurance.
4: What have been some key concerns from motor carriers over the past year or two when it comes to the CSA basic alerts?
5: Well, for the motor carrier, you know, we, and i say we, I refer to me as part of the industry, the motor carrier industry, we haven't seen it as equitable or fair across the board. It, you know, you've got state and local biases, meaning that certain states, uh, there's a top 10 list out there, but, you know, states like uh, New York, Georgia, Florida, the uh, state of Texas, uh, Idaho, not picking on those states, there's a top 10 list. Those states write more violations per inspection than the rest of the country. So if you operate in any of those states, you wind up with a higher score. So that has nothing to do with your operation. It has everything to do with the state and how that state enforces the rules or the law. So that's one issue. uh, Second, another big issue is peer grouping. So we call them safety event groups within CSA, and meaning motor carriers of like size, well, in this case it's like, uh, number of inspections and that that is irregardless of the type of operation you are so it, it's a bias based off of your uh, you know again the state and the type of operation you are it's not really equitable that a flatbed carrier compared to a tank operation compared to a package delivery company that's compared to a drive-in company so it's not really the same peer group uh, one of the other big things that I see is the data queue process. Uh, the data queue process seems to be very lacking in how it's dealt with. Uh, you wind up in data queue for those you just don't know. It's the appeal process within CSA where you get a violation, you disagree with how you appeal that violation. That violation is typically reviewed by the officer that cited you. So it's sent back to the same officer. He or she is then asked to review their citation and make a decision to overturn it, and there's very little uh, appeal to that. All you can do is continue to send it to that same officer. Occasionally some states will allow a supervisor to look at it.
4: But just backing up a little bit, Bert, so mm-hmm. with, with these uh, basic alerts, that's making it even harder for them to get, or it's making premiums skyrocket. Could you just back up and elaborate on that point a little bit? What does it mean for motor carriers looking to buy commercial auto liability insurance?
5: Today, we've been going on for CSA for now nearly eight years uh, across the country. So now there's evidence, when you talk to the insurance market, there's evidence that having certain basics and alerts, you'll pay higher claims. So uh, those, the ones I hear cited most often are gonna be unsafe driving if you're an alert there, you're an alert in hours of service, or you're an alert in vehicle maintenance. Typically, insurance companies pay uh, higher claims
0: for those basics being an alert, it's Fran Matso-Lisak and Bert Mayo talking about uh, the market for insurance for trucking companies and how difficult it can be. And he talks about it being a hard market. So he, he mentions that CSA scores are an initial indicator for risk. So can you talk a little bit about Lisa? You know what you see in the marketplace and how how tough it is and how true that is.
3: It is a tough market in the uh, in the insurance world. We've had some changes as far as the carriers out there, which has made it a little bit uh, tighter, more competitive. So, it, it is a challenge, and uh, they do use the CSA scores as kind of an indicator of what's going on. And I would, in- I think it's always important to meet with the carriers, the underwriters, and really have them understand your program, what your safety Uh program is, what the technology is that you use, because um, there is more than the CSA scores um, that uh, go into a, a safety program. It is how you manage them, what are your drivers, your safety management programs, your training, all of those different pieces out there. I think it's very important to have them understand the full picture. Mm-hmm. but it is a tough market right now. And yeah. with the lawsuits and the high dollar of the lawsuits and some of the recent ones, um, I think that will be, continue to be a challenge, unfortunately. Okay.
0: We did get a reader question. I wanted to get it in. So uh, from Travis Bush, he's asking, what are your thoughts on um, lowering the driving age for over the road? So it's 21 now. You know, There's a lot of talk about that. It's in Congress about bringing that down to let mm-hmm. 18, 19, 20-year-olds go over the road.
3: I'll jump in we have had conversations on that and I know that some carriers have had the discussions as well some have using them on the intrastate side before this so um, not you know something new to them but I think the bigger challenge is how do we get drivers into the industry um, I know in our discussions we looked at and and I have a, a young son that's in his 20s and I've looked at you know him and his friends and would I want to hand the keys over? Some are yes, some are no. Um, <laughs> even today at 23, but <laughs> um, so I think it goes into you know what it is that you're looking at and and what are the programs that you're putting in place to ensure that you have a responsible person at that age, which can be tough, but I think that's an important piece. Um, and I think one other piece is, as we've had discussions, it's important to involve your insurance carrier. Um, mm-hmm. Your main insurance carrier, as far as what are their reactions, are they willing to insure that type of driver, and uh, I know we've had some feedback from ours that they are not willing to insure down to 18, and mm-hmm. uh, so it's important to look at that whole picture before you make any decisions to go further. Mm-hmm. I always want to have more people come into the industry, and I think it's a challenge that we have to tackle as an industry yet.
2: Okay, go ahead. Uh, um, Yeah, I was just gonna ask about about, uh, the severity, uh, the differences in, say, violations. Uh, Indiana is notorious, for example, for speeding. Is there gonna be some leveling of the playing field with the IRT model on this?
1: Sure, I think there's a couple of things that have come up. And in, in the video, uh, the issue of differences between states came up and, and here and kind of the differences of violations. And, and I, the new modeling techniques with IRT certainly have the capability to address those issues. I, I think, you know, towards the idea of severity weights, I'm not even sure we're going to have severity weights you know, I don't, I, it may be that we don't need them anymore because of how we structure the violations. So it may be that they, we find a different way to adjust them or maybe some way to make them less granular um, as opposed to the kind of the one through 10 scale that we have now. So I think all of those kinds of things, and I feel a little bit like I'm, you know just trying to avoid answering the question and just saying, sure, the IRT will fix that. But I think to <laughs> that's some what way, we I, mean, hear. I know it is. Well, that's why I'm saying it because you know, yeah, but but I think part of it is we need to see. Um, but those types of things, um, for those of you that l- look at legislation and read what we were told to look at, there was a laundry list of very specific items in the that were. Um, directed to the National Academies to review very specific things like violation severity weights and other things along those lines and in the National Academies report they reference all of those things but they reference them in the context of letting the IRT model help you to address all of these issues Mm -hmm. so kind of towards my earlier like let's sort of put the you know what we think of now in terms of the structure of SMS may not be uh, the same as what we end up with IRT. So, but there certainly, I think, is really strong, um, you know, data there that the IRT will be able to give us. Towards our example you and I discussed earlier uh, on the speeding, that that was a violation severity example. You know, which one should we place more weight on in terms of evaluating um, different violations? So remains to be seen a little bit. We've got
0: a good viewer comment from Gary at New Century Transport who makes the point, and I guess asks the question, all carriers should be prioritized, I'm sorry, all new carriers should be prioritized for inspections until, time, until such time as we have enough inspections on them that we can be somewhat assured they know what they're doing. We should not give them the benefit of the doubt and assume they are good until proven bad. They should earn their
1: CSA score by going through clean inspections. How about that? Prioritizing the newbies. Sure. That's a good question. now, so there, there is a program for new carriers that is separate, but related to kind of what we're talking about here in terms of prioritization, Mm -hmm. every new carrier uh, that comes in is what we consider a new entrant. And those new entrant carriers are subject to, first of all, an audit within the first 12 months uh, that Mm -hmm. they're on there. So somebody will be reviewing their records and their safety management controls in that first year which I think is important towards uh, towards the point that, you know, in some cases new carriers really are new carriers and they're gaining a lot of experience and and maybe more susceptible to some safety problems at that point in time. So we have that program that's in there. While that goes on, we do uh, continue to evaluate their CSA scores. So there definitely is a recognition on our part that the new carriers that come into the industry do require a little bit of extra scrutiny. In terms of size and scope, and this sometimes is amazing to people, but there are about 40,000 or so new carriers every year that enter the industry. Our total number of carriers does not change by 40,000 every year. So it's almost a turnover of 40,000 carriers a year. So it definitely is something that we watch through the new entrant program but uh, always are are looking for ways to kind of streamline that because the scope of that is so large.
0: Okay. Let's let's throw it real quick to the second part of Fran's interview with Burt Mayo. They're going to talk about some tips that uh, fleets can use for finding the best insurance coverage.
4: What are some tips for motor carriers and fleets looking to lower their insurance premiums and related, related costs in light of everything that we just discussed and until some certainty however long this will take in the revamp of the CSA program?
5: Well, just, just managing your overall cost, we call it cost of risk. So that's, that's, your, that's your premium dollar plus the, the money you spend on your accidents, crashes, within the deductible, things you pay out of pocket. Uh, just managing that overall cost with you know, a better program, better processes, better controls, telematics. Uh, managing CSA, you know the, those things will help you lower those costs. I would tell you today, though, in a hard market, uh, we refer to a hard market. And what I mean by a hard market, that means insurance rates are going up. In a hard market, even doing those things, you're going you're going to struggle to get lower insurance rates. So obviously, the next step in that is to take on more risk. Meaning you're going to own more of that that claim. You know, have higher deductibles or higher retention. And just by the virtue of having higher retentions means you're going to pay more of that loss. So, again, you've got to get better at managing the claim, better at reducing that claim via be telematics, better programs, better controls, better process. Uh, there's captives out there. Uh, I would, uh, captives can get you into a place with lower premiums, if you will. I just would caution anyone going into a captive to think long and hard about it, make sure it's calculated. Uh, once you are in a captive, it's very difficult to get out of a captive because there's, uh, you've got a lot of collateral tied up. It, it's a long play. It's truly a, an extended play. Jumping out of a captive is not as easy as getting in one. The other thing captives have, if you're not careful, they have hidden management fees, hidden actuarial fees. Uh, and you got to remember it's a shared risk program, meaning – uh, you you are in a, a program with other motor carriers, so if they have bad experience, that reflects on your pricing or your pocketbook also.
4: To elaborate a little bit more, like what size fleets are you seeing, small, medium, large? Who would that be the ideal to really get into a captive? And if you can briefly explain in very simple terms what a captive is?
5: Yeah, so a captive is, uh, it, it's, I, I would call it shared loss. So meaning if, if I have a uh, trucking company, you have a trucking company, we find the typical marketplace out there is uh, we can't afford the insurance rates; uh, They're just too high. So me and you would get together and we would uh, have leverage our economy of scale. We would bring more trucks or more risk to the marketplace, and then we would share in that, that risk. So we would combine our premium dollar, we would take a higher deductible, uh, we would pay that. Deductible out of pocket or out of the premiums you would pay into that captive. In in theory, at the end of that, if we controlled our losses better, then we get a dividend payback, meaning we pay more in premium than we pay out in dollars, so we get a dividend paid back to us. Occasionally, captives become kind of a uh, a catchy thing, kind of the new thing. Uh, It's just something to proceed with caution. It's not not always the wrong move, but it's not always the right
4: another broker that i've spoken to has said that they're seeing it at least more of a trend go that way in recent years at least with this this company is it a certain size of motor fleet is my question yeah
5: yeah if i had to get i mean it's not you know where i see it makes sense i i'm not guessing but where it makes sense it's going to make sense for the motor carriers In that 100 200 250 to 500 you get over 500 i believe in my experience you can manage your risk with a high deductible or what we call a high retention product, just meaning you'll take a 100, 150000 dollars of your risk. We can take that dollar, invest in your company. You become a more profitable, uh, just a better overall, better, more efficient company. Plus, you're controlling your loss, and you're able to buy insurance at a higher, you know, it, a higher contact. So, I mean, you're, you're buying in at two fifty or two hundred fifty thousand you're not paying as much premium. You're reinvesting that dollar within the company. Uh, when you're, to me, when you're over 500 trucks, 500 and above, you need to be in a high retention program and managing those those costs under that high retention yourself. You, no one's going to spend your money like you are. Uh-huh. So you can pass it off to a captive. Captives still have to have management teams, so you have to have a TPA to manage your claims. You have to have someone manage the, the money in the captive. Still, no one will ever manage your money like
0: Great insight from Burt Mayo from True North Companies. Burt, thank you. And I did want to make the point that, uh, because as you can see, Burt was in his car when he did that interview because his schedule turned upside down uh, on that particular day, but he wanted to come through for us. But he didn't do it while he was driving. He pulled over and did the interview. So we had a challenge on that one, and we want to thank Burt for that, and Lisa, turned her to schedule around to accommodate us so she could be here live, so a lot of people have gone to great lengths for this show today, so we do hope you've enjoyed it. I think that, I think that Bert really really kind of encapsulated all that we're trying to tackle and address here, because he, he said it, you just, it's just managing your risk. And he made, he made that excellent point, nobody's going to spend your money better than you, right. but it, 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 it all cooks in, everything you can do to just manage that level of risk is what's going to protect your carrier in the long run. Right. So I want to thank Joe DiLorenzo, Lisa Gonnerman, and Eric Miller for this great show today. Uh, if we learn anything, is that managing risk in trucking is complex and can get expensive. We've also learned that the CSA program plays a vital role in fleet's ability to manage that risk. So the outcome of this ongoing review matters a lot, Joe. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so kidding aside, again, thank you to my panel for this great show today. And keep your eyes out uh, for the next live one, which will be coming up in December. We'll have more information uh, later on in, in the weeks ahead. Thanks again to Fran matso and also Burt Mayo, and uh, we'll see you in December. Thanks a lot for watching.